you to, when we talk about Father's Day. And the young boy said, well, well, Father's Day, it's almost as Mother's Day, only you don't spend as much money. <laughs> A young adult growing up then in the church asked about his father and he said, when I was a boy at 14, my father was so ignorant. I could hardly stand to have the old man around. And when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. It wasn't the old man that had learned, it was the son that learned and grew in seven years. What about the grandfathers that we have here, possibly? Right? A grandfather was asked, you know, you've been a father and then a grandfather now. Well, I mean, how do you love? What's the, is it different? Do you feel the difference of, of now being a father to a grandfather? I love being a grandfather. <laughs> In fact, he said, if I would have known that it was being a grandfather was this good, I would have had grandkids first. <laughs> Today we want to thank and commend the fathers for being at church, for their hard work and for being here. But today we want to talk about, as we pause from Corinthians, and what it means, not only for fathers, but for all of us here, whether you're a mother, a father, or whatever place that you find yourself in life today, that you would leave a legacy. And if you like taking notes, I would encourage you to write that down, that you would leave a legacy. What does it mean to leave a legacy? Because you don't want to leave just any legacy. You want to leave the right legacy for your family. The right legacy for your family. And the only way to leave a legacy is to have that generational leadership coming from one generation to the other, having the fathers, the mothers, the leaders, the spiritual figures in, in, in the generation's life that would raise them up in the ways of God. That's why we must have an effective witness. If you want to have a... Uh, legacy, you have to have an effective witness in the life of your children, in the life of your family, in the life of your siblings, in the life of those that you interact with every day, and your presence matters. Your presence matters. As fathers, I'll tell you this, we're called to be the priest, the protector, and the provider of our homes. In that order. You're called to be the priest, the pastor of your home. The number one shepherd of the home is the father there. The priest. But also the protector, one that protects the home, one that provides that safety. But also the provider, one that works hard to meet the needs of the home. It's the father's responsibility. It's not the mother's responsibility. It's the father's responsibility. The priest, the protector, and the provider. And as a father, or as a, a figure, a spiritual father figure, it's important that we realize that we're either leading our families closer to God, or we're leading them away from God. You would say, well, I don't have any children. Well, I'm not a father. Are you leading those around you closer to God? Or are you leading them away from what God has for them? Your primary responsibility is to commit to raise your family, your children specifically, your wife as well, in the ways of the Lord, to be leaders in the home. To raise up godly men, to raise up godly women, right? 
I think so many times, even in our, in our time today, fathers are more concerned about, about giving their children the best shoes, the best house, the best schools, the best cars, instead of giving them the Word of God. Your primary responsibility is to give your children the Word of God. That is your primary responsibility. That comes before anything, that you give your children the Word of God. You see, raising your children is about much more than raising your child. Raising your children is about much more than raising your child. You have been given the sacred trust by God to raise the future. Don't think about, I'm just raising my child. No, you're raising by God's sacred trust. He's entrusted you to raise the future of now our culture, our society, and of our world. That's what has been said before. You show me your children's faith, and I'll show you your children's future. How does your children's faith look? Because the way their faith look, also their future looks down those same lines. You see, one of the greatest things also that a father can do, and I'll tell you this, one of the greatest things that a father can do for his children is to biblically and to visually love their mother. You want to be able to impact your children, then show them that you love their mother. Show them that you care about their mother. Show them that you really want to spend time with their mother. That's one of the best ways to minister to your children by the way that you treat their mom. And if you're not treating their mom well, guess what? You're not going to be able to minister to them no matter what. Because that is the primary responsibility to lead them to the Lord, but also to show them what it means to be a man of God and a husband of God. Today we're going to go over four major points, if you love taking notes. And the first one is the need of a father. The second one is the exhortation to the fathers. The third is the work of a father. And the fourth is the love of the father. The love of the Father. When it, at a glance, look at the first two, and it applies to all of us. Whether you're a father, a mother, or you're not any of them. Because soon enough, maybe God's calling you to a position of a father. Or maybe you're a mother, and, and you want to know what it's supposed to look like, or what does it mean to be a parent. Or maybe you're neither one or the other, but God is raising you up in a home where you ought to know what to expect, what from your parents, but also what, how, to, how to submit to them as, your, uh, as children, as their children. Right? And the first one is the need of a father. Because in order to leave a legacy, you have to have a father, here we go, present. See, today we live in a very fatherless generation. A very fatherless generation. We need fathers. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 4.15? He says, For though you have, might have 10,000 instructors, you might have 10,000 instructors or guardians or, or guides or supervisors or caretakers, he's telling them, in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. You need fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, therefore I urge you, imitate me. You know, he's saying, although you might have a lot of people that raised you up in the Lord, that maybe taught you the Word of God, that there were instructors, that were teachers, that were guides, that were guardians, that were caretakers for you, even in the faith, you do not have many fathers. So we need fathers in our generation. But what does it mean? What does Paul mean here? He's talking about a leadership. He's talking about a leadership. 
with the authority not of an instructor, but with the authority of a father. You see, there's, different, there's a difference there. God's called you to be more than just an instructor. He's given you the authority of a father. It's different than just an instructor. It's different than just anything, any other role. There's only a, a, our Heavenly Father that we have, and then one Father that we're privileged that God has earthly given to us. I, I remember being at a soccer game one time and, and noticing how the, the role and the authority of a father no longer means what it once meant. <laughs> And this, this, this uh, coach that was on the sideline had his own son in the team. And it's the team that he was coaching. And he's there c- coaching the kids from the sideline and yelling at them like, you go over here, you move over here and strategically trying to put them in the right place, right? And he starts to now try to coach his son. And you know, he's out there yelling at his son. And he said, hey, you listen to me. Right here, I'm your coach. I'm not your father. <laughs> And I start to think to myself, when, when did coach become elevated above father? When was it more important to be a coach than a father? You might have many coaches, you might have many instructors, you might have many guides, but you're in need of a father. What kind of a father was he talking about? Of a, of a symbol, of a father, of an authority, one that genuinely cares and concerns, one that has a love, one that has a love. Now, for those that he's leading. An example worth imitating. But today fathers are missing in action. We live in a fatherless society and generation now that affects our entire culture and world around us. Today fathers need to step up to the plate. They do. They need to step up to the plate. It's been said before, the most, of the, the most endangered species in America is not the spotted owl or the snail darter, but it's the responsible father. It's the most endangered species now. The responsible father. Fatherless child or children statistics show us that 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. Here, 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youth in prison come from fatherless homes. Fatherless boys and girls are twice as likely to drop out of high school, twice as likely to end up in jail, four times more likely to, help, to, to need help for emotional or behavioral problems. Do we need fathers? Yes, we do. We're in need of fathers. We're in desperate need of fathers. But what kind of fathers do we need? We need godly fathers. We need godly fathers. You see, any man can have a kid, but it takes a true man of God to be a father. To be a father, to father his children. The need for fathers. Number two, the exhortation to fathers. And this can actually apply for both men and women to those that are raising up mothers and fathers that are raising up children. In Ephesians 6, 4, it tells us this very clearly. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children. What is it? The exhortation to the fathers, to the parents? Do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the, adam- the training and the admonition of the Lord. It's an exhortation to parenting. An, or- an exhortation to what it means to-, to bring up someone in the Lord. A child. 
Or maybe somebody else. Maybe you get to be a father figure, a spiritual figure in someone else's life. And it says, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't, don't hear provoke means do not discourage them. Don't discourage your children to wrath or to become angry or to become discouraged or to become disillusioned. What is it telling us here, Father? You ought to father your children the way God fathers you. Not humiliating them, not embarrassing them, but loving them. And how does it say here, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord? What is the training and admonition of the Lord? It says bring them up. I love that word that it says bring them up. It says don't discourage them for, uh, first, but bring them up. See, the word to discourage means to put down, but then bring up means to encourage. Don't discourage, but bring them up. <laughs> when was the last time you brought up your children? You brought up that person that you were desperately praying for, that you brought them up, that you not discouraged and you brought them up. It's amazing here because sometimes the way of discouraging our kids or your children is simply by not providing encouragement. That's automatically sometimes discouraging. The way of discouraging your kids is simply sometimes but not by not providing encouragement. And here he's telling them, do not discourage them. In fact, encourage them. Bring them up. Bring them up. How does he want you to bring them up here, Paul? The exhortation that we get from God's Word. But bring them up in the training. Well, the word for training means corrective discipline. You see, correct, all parents are, are ready to correctly correct and discipline their children, right? But the corrective discipline and admonition or the teaching of the Lord. That's the training and teaching of the Lord. The training and teaching. So how do you bring them up? It means that you bring them up. It means that you bring them, that you come with them also to church. That you don't take them, you bring them. You're also showing up to church and the things of the Lord. You're bringing them with you. You see, the word bring them means to nurture the body or the mind. It means, and it has a form of suggesting a development by care and by pains. That's what it means to bring someone up. To nurture, to care by pains, by discipline, by correction. That's what it means to bring someone up. But then what is it saying? In the training, in the training, corrective discipline. How much training are you investing in your children? You know, today, I was reading a book even earlier which said that when it comes to training, some people invest more training in their pets than they do in training their children. They don't want to train their children, but they're willing to train and spend the money to train maybe a pet. But when it comes to their children, I don't want to train them. I don't want to spend the time. I don't want to spend the resources. I don't want to spend the energy and make the investment in my children. But I will spend the attention and the investment in something else. So you have a responsibility, Ephesians here tells us, to leave a legacy. Train them up. Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. What does it mean to leave a legacy? It means to train someone up. It means to train them up in the ways of the Lord. And leaving a legacy is, is much more than simply passing on, I'll tell you this, the family name. Today we always think about passing on the family name. Passing on the family pride. Passing on the family culture. 
There's much more important things in the family culture and the family name. I'll tell you that right now. You know, you belong to a bigger family and that's the family of God. And there is no greater name, no more important name than the name of the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's what it means to leave a legacy, not pass on your name. A legacy involves passing on the kingdom worldview. That's what it means to leave a legacy. It means to pass on a godly perspective, whether it involves a son or a daughter. That's what it means to leave a legacy. That you're passing on God's name. That you're passing on God's character. That you're passing on the kingdom agenda that we see in God's word. That's what it means to leave a legacy. I was talking to a friend yesterday over the phone that that you know, I, I was raised with in church and he's so talented, had incredible amount of gifts. And he has two little young boys and I asked him, how's it going? How are your kids doing? Is it, they're doing well. I said, are you taking them to church? He said, oh no, I don't go to church. My parents take them to church. I said, it's not your, your parents' responsibility to take your kids to church. It's your responsibility to take your kids to church. I, I just, I'm just going to give them the opportunity to believe what they want. What are you good for then? You're not going to train them up in the admonition of the Lord? You know, your, 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 your children will love the things of the Lord if they know that you love the things of the Lord as well. Amen. They will follow that example. The reason why many young men or women are not coming to church anymore that are not in love with God's Word is because they never learned it from their father. And now they said, you know, if it wasn't important to dad, then it's not important to me. Children will remember what, kid, what, 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 what their father, not so much what their father did for them, as much as what their father did with them. And one of the most important things to remember is taking them to church. Taking them to church. Because they start to form a view of God based off how they have a relationship with their earthly father. <coughs> And their heavenly father, the view and the form that they have developed in their mind of a heavenly father, it's based off sometimes the relationship that they have with their earthly father. That's why we must do our best to represent our heavenly father to our children, to give them the gospel. Because we are a reflection of God the Father to everyone around us. And it doesn't matter what place you are in life, you are a reflection, right? That's what it means to leave a legacy. It comes with a high price. It, it comes with an expensive price to leave a legacy. It comes with, with time that you have to invest in energy and resources that you must invest. There was a story of a father that decided to take his little daughter to the zoo one day. And she asked if she can bring some friends along and her dad agreed. She said, all right, go for it. Bring some friends along to the zoo. So a little girl did whatever the little girl would do. She invited 10 friends. <laughs> And as she invited 10 friends to join them, she noticed that at the zoo there were elephant rides and all the little kids were getting elephant rides. And she asked her dad if she can go on the ride. Her dad looked at now the price and then times it by 11. And he told his daughter, that's too much, he said. And, he, and she looked at him and said, too much? She, he replied, yeah, that's too much. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. She looked at her dad. She said, I know, daddy. She replied, but that's because it's an elephant. <laughs> you see, the father was looking at the price and the daughter was looking at the size. It seemed that when he was just looking at the cost, it mattered a lot to him. 
But it didn't seem a lot to her when, he, when, when she compared the size of the elephant. Now why do you say this, you might ask yourself, because sometimes we focus on the price of what it means to leak a legacy. The price of time, the price of investment, the price of energy, the price of resources, among many other things. Instead of focusing on the size of the legacy and the impact that you are producing in the lives of other people, and then you start to realize it's worth every single investment. Because of the legacy that it's producing in the life of not only my wife, my children, my co-workers, my sibling. It's worth the investment to leave a legacy. Don't look at the price of the legacy. Look at the size of the impact that the legacy has. We're at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, now verse 10. And we start to learn here that Paul is a spiritual father to the church of Thessalonica. And he tells us how he has a calling and a responsibility. That it is hard work to be a father. It's hard work to be a parent. It's hard work to be able to raise someone up, to teach someone, to disciple someone. Maybe today you're not a father, you're a student, but God's called you to disciple a friend. To be that type of form of discipler in the life of somebody else. To, to give them the name of Jesus, to give them the testimony of Jesus, to give them the witness of Jesus, and you by discipling are entering into the role that Paul is about to talk about by discipling a co-worker, discipling a friend, discipling your own children, discipling your spouse, right? You are going to enter into the calling and responsibility here that Paul is talking about, and it's hard work. We don't have time, and we can't be lazy fathers. We can't be lazy disciplers. A little boy had a right about his dad, a report at school. And then he went up to read it. And he got a little paper, stood up in class, and he said, my dad can climb the highest mountain. My dad can swim the biggest ocean. He can fly the fastest plane. He can fight the strongest tiger. My dad can do anything. But most of the time, he just takes out the trash. <laughs> Being a father is hard work. Being a father is hard work. It's not all talk. It's hard work. And look what Paul says here now as he's fathering, now discipling, raising up here the church of Thessalonica with the love of a father as he's investing in others. I want to ask you, are you investing in others? It doesn't matter what place you are in life. You must be investing in others. Because when you're investing in others, now you are living a life of an effective witness. If there's anything that we want to be is an effective witness. You can't leave a legacy. You can't leave and pass on God's name. You can't pass on His character. You can't pass on the kingdom agenda until you first have lived an effective witness. That's what it takes first. Can't do anything until you live an effective witness. Yesterday we were at a men's breakfast and the pastor that, that went up before to give some words of encouragement. I love what he said. He says, everyone's a witness, guys. He told the man, everyone's a witness, man. Just some of you guys are bad witnesses. <laughs> You see, we have to learn to be a good witness, an effective witness for the Lord. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, it says here, You are witnesses. This is amazing. What does it mean right here? That Paul cares about his witness. Do you care about your witness? We're going to learn here, it says, about him being a witness. You are witnesses in God also, how devoutly and justly, and blamelessly we behave ourselves among you who believe. Why don't we pray? Lord, we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, because we can pray in the middle 
of the message. <laughs> we thank you, Lord, that we can ask for your direction and your strength. I pray, Lord, that we would live a life of an effective witness. A life that matters, Lord, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, together the church said, Amen. Amen. It says here, you are witnesses, and God also how devoutly, one, number one, devoutly is the one characteristic. Number two, how justly is number two in the characteristic. And how blamelessly it says, we behave ourselves among you who believe. So now it's calling us, if we're going to live a life of effectiveness or a life of, of a witness that is effective, we must live a life of transparency. You know what's missing in leadership today? Is transparency. It doesn't matter where you are. We need to live lives of transparency. We're going to impact anyone else's life. If you're a, a, a man of God, a woman of God, a young man growing up, a young lady growing up in the church, you must live a life of transparency. And Paul is saying here, you know, Church of Thessalonica, that the only reason that we're an effective witness and an effective tool is because we lived a life of transparency. And I love what a life of transparency means. Because transparency has everything to do with accountability. Accountability. It means that you're not living a private life. You're accountable. And it says you are witnesses. You and God are witnesses. What does it mean, you and God? It means that someone is always watching. Whether it's the children, whether it's those at work, whether it's your siblings, but somebody is always watching your life. You might think nobody's watching because nobody's around, but I love that he includes their God. You're witnesses and God is also a witness. And he tells them, you are witnesses. You know this. You know that you're a witness, that I have lived a transparent life now. How has he lived a transparent life in this public ministry? In three different qualities. And he gives us that example. And I pray that today we would leave with those three qualities really honed into our hearts. Because if we don't have these, then we cannot leave a legacy to anyone. We cannot effectively witness to other people. We cannot effectively disciple someone else. We cannot raise them up in the ways of God, anyone, unless we have these three things. So what does it say? In order for me to put myself in a position of influence... I first had to put myself in a position of obedience. If you want to be influential, first you have to be obedient. And it tells us here how devoutly, number one, what does it mean to be devout? It means to be pure. It means to be holy. It means to be godly. Number one, you want to have an influence. You must be pure. You must be holy. And you must be godly. You know yourselves how devout, how godly, how pure, how holy I behave myself. You try to lead anyone without being pure, holy, or godly, you're not going to lead them into the God's name, into God's character, into God's kingdom agenda. You're not going to lead them there because you're not being devoutly. God has called you to be devout as a mother, as a father. That means that you're pure, that means that you're holy, and that means that you're godly. You were a witness that I've been devout, he's saying. I've been an example for you to follow. And I've lived here in verse 10. I've lived a certain way. I didn't just live the way I wanted. I lived a certain way because I knew you were watching. You know, it's interesting when as a parent, you understand that your children are always watching. And they want to do what you want to do. They like to touch what you like to touch. They want to be involved in the things that you're involved. 
And so likewise, your friends that love you, they're interested in being a part of your life and you want to disciple them. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to watch you. And you know, you know I've been so accountable. I've been so transparent. I love that in verse 2 of this same book, 1 Thessalonians verse 2, look what it says in verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 2 verse 1. For you yourselves know. Look, they knew. That's transparency. They knew. They did not know. It wasn't like they didn't know. They actually knew his life. You know when transparency starts to become very static and foggy? When we don't let other people know what we're doing. When we can't see the devout, the just, the pure. In verse 2, then it goes, But even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, they were an open book, they had an open heart. They made themselves available. They loved them. And because they loved them, they allowed them to be a part of their life. And it said, and you know again. Let's go to verse 5. For neither at any time did we use flattering words as you know. Why does he keep saying you know? Because he wants to be transparent. If you want to be transparent, you have to let others come into your life and be able to examine your life and say, look at, this, look at my life. I live devoutly. But what's the second characteristic of how he lived in verse 10? It says, he also lived justly. Justly. Justly means fair. Justly means honestly. Justly means with integrity. That's what it means, justly. It means that you don't have a double standard. It means that you don't have different weights that are measuring now the outcome. It's just. It's honest. It's, it's fair. It's, it's full of integrity. Right? And not only did I live pure, holy and godly here, Paul is saying, but I also live fair and honest. You can't disciple someone. You can't raise them up to the Lord. You can't give them the Lord's name. You can't lead them to the character of God or give them the kingdom agenda that's found in God's word unless you live justly. That means fair. That means honest. That means not double-minded. Single-minded. Singleness of mind. Integrity. But then he also lived in another way. He lived not only devoutly, not only justly, but also in verse 10, blamelessly. Blamelessly has the now definition of without blame. That you cannot bring up an accusation against that person. They have faithfully fulfilled an obligation. That's what it means to be blameless. They faithfully fulfill an obligation. You see, you want your children, maybe a spouse, maybe your co-workers to really come to know Jesus, to have an impact, the disciple to really impress now the name of God, the kingdom of God, the word of God. It starts with your life. It starts with the devoutly. It starts with the justly. It starts with the blamelessly. But what do they do? Devoutly, justly, blamelessly? They behaved among you who believe. It's, the, it's about the way that you lived among them. You see, because there's more, more than one way to give a message. Sometimes we want to give a message by speech, but people are wanting to see the message by sight in your life. And the only solution for either men or women acting badly in our society, in our culture, or fathers and mothers for acting badly, the only solution for that is for other men and women of God to start acting godly. That's the only solution. But then in verse 11, look what he's telling us now. As you know again, transparent to a life of encouragement. You want to be a discipler of God. You have to live a life first of 
transparency, but then you must live a life of encouragement. As you know how we exhort it, the word exhort also comes from the word encourage. It also comes from the word build up. We exhort it here. We encourage now and comfort it and charge every one of you as a father does to his own children. What is he teaching us here? What does it mean to do this? He exhorted. He encouraged. How do you encourage someone? Simply way of encouraging someone maybe is to tell them that you love them. But he does three things in verse 11. He encourages, he comforts, and then he charges. Like a father. And for us to see the difference that takes place in other people's life, it's going to start with encouragement, it's going to start with comfort, and then it's going to go with a charge. You sometimes want to charge things without having first encouraged and comforted. I charge you, I expect this from you, I want this from you. And you're charging, you're insisting, you're, you're demanding something without first providing the exhortation or the encouragement and the comfort that that person would need. Verse 11, he tells us that. I want to make the good use of words. You know how I encourage someone? Make good use of words. Encourage them, tell them that you love them. But that encouragement didn't stop there. It actually led him now as one that was discipling the church to also comfort them, to show them love and tenderness. That the world of the tough love that we want to live in, to instill fear, it's not always effective. Because here the word comfort means, yes, show them that you're strong, but also show them that you're sensitive. Show them that you care. Show them that you're concerned. Comfort always talks about concern. And he says, you know how I acted here? It says, I exhorted, I comforted, and I charged them every, with every one of you. Charges what? He demanded, he implored, he taught them. As a father does to his own children. You see, first he lived a life of transparency. So that he can live a life of that encouragement. So that in verse 12, he can live a life of an effective witness. You can't have or be an effective witness. You can't disciple people. You can't grow people. You cannot see your friends that you are praying for to come to Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus Christ. Or see them remain in the Lord. Or see lasting fruit in their lives. Until first it started with a life of transparency. Into the life of encouragement, right? Of admonition, of training up, of comfort, of charging them like a father does to his children. Until to, and you cannot get the, the results of verse 12 until you have first lived a life of verse 10 and 11. Sometimes you want to see the results of verse 12, but we don't want to live the life of verse 10 and 11. What are the results of verse 12? It says that you would. So he's saying you're going to be a, live a life of transparency. And you're going to exhort comfort and charge. So that you can have or so that you would walk worthy. This is the life of an effective witness. This is the goal now. That you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. It's about the kingdom of God and the glory of God. So that you would walk according to the kingdom of God and according to the glory of God. And that word worthy means it's so that you would be found acceptable to God and His kingdom. That you would be approved, that you would be holy. That you would be approved and you would be holy. But if you want to see that, it has to start first with verse 10 and 11. Living a life of transparency. And living a life of encouragement. Isn't this incredible right here how he says... That you devoutly, justly, and blamelessly live, Paul. 
And not only did he live this way, but then his actions demonstrated that he exhorted, comforted, and charged. So that he can get the outcome of verse 12 that was the lasting fruit. In 1 John chapter 3, I'm sorry, in 3 John, the first, the only chapter of that book, verse 4, it says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. No greater joy than to hear that. But in order to first hear that, we have to have the life of transparency. We have to have the life of encouragement so that we would see them walking worthy as God who calls you into His own kingdom and His own glory. There was a sad confession of a father one day that wrote down the last days of his life. He said, I took my children to school, but not to church. I taught them to drink, but not of the living water. I enrolled them in Little League, but not in Sunday school. I showed them how to fish, but not how to be fishers of men. I made the Lord's Day a holiday, but not ever a holy day. What are we doing in order that we would leave a legacy? And again, I encourage you, this doesn't mean only if you're a father. It involves all of us. It includes all of us. It talks about all of us. How we ought to live in order for us to leave a legacy of a kingdom mentality that's for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. We've talked about what the need of a father is. The exhortation to the father. The work of the father. But now let's talk as we close the love of the father. What is the love of the father? Well, the love of the Father is displayed so simply and, and maybe because you didn't have a loving Father that, that it doesn't mean that your Heavenly Father is not present. That your Heavenly Father doesn't love you. He does love you. In the Gospel you know that you have a Father and that He loves you. What does the Gospel tell us? That for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the Gospel and it tells you that, that God our Father loved us. But you also know that God is our Father because it talks about it through the Gospels in prayer. When Jesus prayed, how did He start His prayer? He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name. We know He's our Father because we learn it through prayer. Number one, you know that God is your Father because you've learned it through prayer in Scripture. Our Father who art in heaven. That's what you know. You have a heavenly Father that loves you. We've learned it through now prayer. You know how you also have a father? The Bible tells us even in the songs. Even in the songs of the Bible. We learn it in the prayer that we have a father. We also learn it in the songs of the Bible. In the Psalms of King David. What did he say? Psalm 68 verse 5. A father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in His holy habitation. Now in prayer, we know that we have a Father. In the Psalms, we know that He is a Father to the fatherless. That He is a defender of the widows. Here it says, is God in His holy habitation. He's a Father to the fatherless. But we also learn about our Father in prophecy. We learn about a Father in prayer. We learn about our Father in songs. We also learn about our Father in prophecy. You know what we learn about our Father in prophecy? Isaiah 9.6. What does it say? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Here we go. 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isn't this amazing? You're telling me that in the prayer, God's telling me that He's my Father. You're saying that in the songs, God says that He's my Father. Now you're saying that in the prophecy, God's saying that He is my Father, yes. And I pray that today you would know God's everlasting love as your Father. That He is your everlasting love. Everlasting Father. In spite of suffering, in spite of pain, that nothing in the past, nothing in the present, nothing in the future can separate you from the love of the Father. And maybe today you've come in today and you just need to feel loved. I want to tell you, He loves you so much. I remember the day that one day I was driving. And I was driving to work and, I, and the Lord just broke me. And He reminded me of how much He loves me. And He said, Art, I was driving, He said, Art, I love you. And the moment that it broke me, He said, even if you weren't a pastor, I would still love you. Even if you didn't even do ministry, I'd still love you. Because I'm your father. And I love you. And maybe today, you need God to tell you that he loves you. He doesn't love you for what you do. He loves you because that's who he is. And nothing in the past, nothing in the future, nothing in the, in the, in the present will ever separate you from the promise of the father's love. I'm going to read to you what Romans chapter 8 tells us when talking about the love of God. Because in the love of God, I'll tell you this, there's no condemnation. And sometimes we let the enemy in the world and even Christians and even other people at church condemn us. When you're covered by the love of God, in the love of God, there's no condemnation. No one can condemn you. Yes, you're full of mistakes. Yes, you're full of errors. But in His love, in His perfect love, there is no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 31 tells us this. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to the things that we're suffering and the persecution and the tribulation and the trial and all the struggle that's going on in my life and all the adversary and all the opposition that I'm feeling from every angle now? Paul is talking here to the church in Romans chapter 8. What am I going to say about these things? You know what he tells us here in verse 31? What shall I say about these things? If God is for me, then who can be against me? If He loves you, then who can be against you? And it tells us then the next verse, verse 32. He did not spare His own Son. That's how much He loves you. He didn't spare what was most precious to Him. He did not hold what was most beautiful to Him. What was most valued to Him. He did not hold it back. He gave you all things. He gave you His Son. That was most important to Him. Verse 32, He did not spare His own Son, but He delivered Him up for all. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If God loved you enough to give you what was most important to Him, don't you think He'll give you everything else? That's how much He loves you. If God was willing to love you so much to give what was most important to Him. Do you not think He's also going to give you all everything else along with that because He's already given you His Son? What shall bring, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who's going to accuse you? Today you don't have to stand accused. You don't have to stand guilty. You don't have to stand condemned. You don't have to try to prove yourself. Because He's saying, it is God who justifies. God's already forgiven me. I'm no longer guilty. God makes you right then who can condemn me? 
If God's made me right, then who can condemn me? Who can point the finger at me? Here Paul is saying, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, also Christ has risen, here it says, and even is at the right hand of God who always makes intercession for us. You know how much the Son also loves you? That He's standing right there by the Father at the throne room. And every time you have your accuser that's coming, the enemy, and is accusing you before the Father, the Son comes because of the Father's love. He sent His Son that He died and rose again. The Son comes and He starts to plead your case against the adversary. And He starts to plead your case before the Father. He's saying, no, 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 that person's forgiven. They're not guilty anymore. I died for them, Father. We love them. Remember, Father, we love them that much. They're not condemned. They're not accused. They're forgiven. They're clothed with mercy. They're clothed with grace. We love them so much. What does this tell us? That we can stand before the Father in love. And then here's the promise. Today I want you to leave with this promise. In verse 35 it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You think tribulation? Separate us? Distress? Persecution? Famine? nakedness, peril, a sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're all counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am persuaded, verse 3, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Not even the darkest days will ever separate you from the love of Jesus. As you come now to Him and understand how much the Father loves you, are you allowing anything to separate you, anyone to separate you from the love of God? But I'll tell you this, God doesn't change. God doesn't move. God has always been there. And maybe it's been us that have changed. Maybe we're distant from God because we've moved and not Him. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I just pray for healing, Lord, today. Maybe there's some of us here that need healing. Not only do we pray for the prodigal sons today on Father's Day, but Lord, we're daring enough to pray for the prodigal fathers. Fathers that need you still. Fathers that need to know that you love them. Fathers that need to know this promise, that you would soften with this promise that neither height nor death nor aiding created thing, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. 